We are talking tonight, continuation of last week. But I want to make sure everyone's on the same page. So I'm going to do a little recap of what we discussed last week. What we're going to do is we're going to finish up what we spoke about last week and then move on to the topic of mechitzas in shul, which is, uh, I think, a very interesting topic, very relevant topic, and in, in many ways misunderstood. So let's begin. We began talking about how a shul needs to be treated with a pro- proper respect. We gave a couple examples of how, uh, what proper respect means. Anyone remember some examples that we gave? Can't come in if it's raining, just to get out of the rain. Uh, no eating or drinking. No eating or drinking. No sleeping. No sleeping. No sleeping. sleeping. No, no eating or drinking in the shul? Yeah. yeah. Oh, in the shul. In the shul. Okay. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Now, at the same time, we saw a, uh, uh, the Gemara said that if you make a condition, then these things don't apply. Outside of Israel, right? Outside of Israel, right. Um, and then we saw that there were sages who nevertheless even... Oh, we also saw that for, um, for Torah scholars, they, they, these rules don't apply for them as well. Um, why? Because it's their home, this is where they hang out, this is their place. Um, so these were all the different things that we saw. So we kind of had to piece together all these pieces of information. On the one hand, we're saying you can make conditions. On the one hand, we're saying you have to treat it with respect. Torah scholars, so what do we do? So we had basically three approaches. Remember three approaches? We had the Arzarua, the Ramban, and Toysfus. Let's begin with the most lenient opinion. The Arzarua believed that he understood that whole discussion as basically if you make a condition that this shul is going to be used for eating and drinking, obviously you can't disrespect it outright, but if you make a condition that we're going to eat or drink in the shul, it's okay. And even a layman can use that condition, it's no problem. Do you have to explicitly make that condition? Yes. Um, now, Tamil Chachamim, uh, as Torah scholars, they are able to do these things in a shul even if no condition was made. According to the second thing. According to, according to the first, the Urzeru. Okay. Then we moved on to the Ramban. The Ramban, Nachmanides said that he understood the whole thing as being a kind of like in a time of need. So in a time of need where there's nowhere else to go, maybe there's no room big enough to host the Sheva Brachas or whatever it is. So then these things apply. If a condition was made, you can use it. No condition was made, even in a time of need, you can't use it. Torah scholars can use in a time of need a shul even if there were no condition made. So basically, he takes the whole thing and just moves it down to where it's in a time of need instead of just open-ended like the Urzeruah believed. So so far we have the Urzeruah, the most lenient, the Ramban, um, kind of next. And then we have the most strict, which is Tosus. Tosus basically believed that... That what? Never. Never, except... When it's... When it's destroyed? Exactly. When it's destroyed. So if you made a condition that this property is going to be used for the purposes that we want to use it for, after it's destroyed, then you can use it. But if not, even after it's destroyed, the property, the area of the shul cannot be used. Okay, so how do we paskin? How do the shulchan aruch paskin? Who remembers? Uh, like which one? I think he was stringent. Most stringent. Exactly, Shulchan Aruch passing like the most stringent opinion that uh, for nothing, 
You can't use a shawl for eating, for drinking, even if the condition was made, only when it's, only when it's destroyed. And so basically the question that we had was, well, we see that shawls are used for these purposes. So what's going on? How can we explain it? So we gave a number of approaches to try to explain this uh, phenomenon. One was that sometimes a minig actually undoes a, a law. So if the minig has become one way, um, it can actually undo what the strict letter of the law is. Is it too warm in here or is it okay? I'm okay. Uh, Okay. Yeah, okay. Okay. I thought you did this on Tuesday night. Yeah, yeah. so um, this week, like Weimar. So we moved it to. We didn't skip a week, I'm so impressed. That's it. <laughs> that the teacher and the students were so devoted. Who's schlepping who? That's mutual. <laughs> so, the, even though the Shulchan Aruch. Could you repeat that? Just repeat what you just said. Yeah, so. so yeah, so, so the, the law is, even though the Shulchan Aruch said the halacha follows Tosfus, when the minig becomes a certain way, we can follow that minig even if the minhag followed a different opinion. Obviously, if the minig is not following anybody and just taking it, obviously you can't follow the minig if it goes against halacha totally. But over here, the minig is following more lenient opinion, the opinion of the Orzorua. So since there is someone to, to pin it on, we can say that the minig is grounded in a real opinion, and uh, we can go along with that meaning. But that <clears throat> lenient opinion, right, says <clears throat> you have to make an explicit the condition. So at some point, like, did the rabbis here make an explicit oh. condition, like, you can drink coffee during uh, shakris? Okay, so that's something we're, we're going to get into oh, okay. to, uh, after this whole discussion. So we want to kind of get through. The other thing okay. is, you couldn't, make an, you couldn't do a minhag more lenient than the most lenient opinion? Yes. Exactly. Meaning, a minute it can't just do anything, right? It, it, it can only be a minute that stands if there's yeah, something, yeah, something to it. To, to stand, to support. Exactly. Exactly. Sometimes you'll actually find in like, uh, uh, like rabbinic li literature, um, a, a rabbi, let's say, moved into a town and says, I see that people here are doing whatever, whatever. Right. It's not the halacha, so I want to try to find some reason why this is okay. And you find that. You find that it's very interesting. Um, okay, that was one approach. Another approach was that actually the way this should be done is that the shul should be the shul and there should be a separate room where other things are done. So like in this shul, you have the main shul where eating is not really done and then you have the, the, the shtibel over there where it's kind of a mix and that's okay because it was set up that way not to be a shul. Um, and it's actually better to, and if you establish the shul that way, there's not going to be a shul, it's going to be a, a shtibel it's going to be like a community thing, and that's okay because it never got the, the full status of a shul. What's the problem with that? Well, then you don't have a shul. It doesn't have the full sanctity of a shul. And one of the mitzvahs of the Torah is to have a shul. To Vasili Mikdash, you should make a temple, you should make a, a place um, in your midst to, to, to serve Hashem. So that's why it's better to have two rooms, one which is a shul, one which is kind of like base medrash style, and over there you, you can eat. Um, the third option was that for Su'udas Mitzvah, things which have to do with a mitzvah, so Sudash Lishit, or a Kiddush in Shul, you could even say, or different things like that, can be categorized as a mitzvah. Once it's a mitzvah, it's not a disgrace to the Shul by eating there, it's a mitzvah. You're actually doing a, another mitzvah in the Shul, and, and obviously that's not a problem. So you could... So you Based on that, if you had, let's say you had a bris milah over here, mm -hmm. and there was no other rooms, you could actually set up eating and drinking. Correct. You could have. One, Correct. One, 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 one. 
Okay. Now, you asked a good question. Um, well, what happens if there was no condition, or how does that all work? So ideally, there should be an explicit thing said. Um, either, if, a, if a, let's say a shul is purchased, a property is purchased at the time of the purchase, or the time of the first Shabbos, whatever it is, it should be said, you know, we're gonna use the shul for uh, community stuff, and we're gonna eat here as well. Um, if not, then there's something in which halacha recognizes, which is a person's like kind of default, you know, modus operandi. So let's say even with, when it comes to the laws of Sfirat Omer, which we're dealing with right now, this comes up. Halacha is very clear that um, when a person hears somebody else counting Sfirat Omer, you have to actually have in mind not to be yotze from him. Because just hearing the blessing and the counting from somebody else can already make it, uh, you can already fulfill your obligation. So you actually have to actively be thinking, I don't want to be Beyonce uh, from this person's counting. If you want to count yourself. Correct. Which all of us do, right? We stand in shul and make the bracha. So the question is, well, I don't know about you, but I don't always think that. I don't always consciously think that. So if I don't think that, do I all of a sudden not have the ability to make a bracha? Just because I didn't think that? But if you're actively saying the bracha, isn't it implied you are doing it for yourself? Well, the problem is it's too late. Because remember, what happens is the chazan says it, and then I say it after the chazan. So I'm hearing from the chazan first. So if I don't actively say I don't want to be yotze, I heard it from the chazan before myself, too late. So can I not make a bracha then if I didn't actively think this way? So the answer is no. It's okay. Why? For this reason. Because we understand that your default mindset was not to be yotze. Just because you didn't explicitly say it doesn't mean that you changed your mind. It just means you didn't, didn't get a chance to think about it before the bracha was said. So there's kind of like a halacha recognizes that there are certain cases where we absolutely know that this is the person's default uh, mindset in this thing. And... Um, and we'll, we'll take into account. Same thing with the shul. If the shul was built, but there was no condition made, so does that mean you can never eat in the shul forever? There was no, no. we recognize that this is probably what they wanted, and uh, you can go ahead. Okay. But let's just, with all of that in mind, the fact of the matter is the shulchan aruch and the ramah um, do say that uh, you can eat in the shul. So, Let's kind of go down the path of kind of the strict letter of the law, if we're going to follow the Shulchan Aruch. They do say that a Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, can eat in a shul. So who is this Talmud Chacham? What classifies somebody as a Talmud Chacham that would make them allowed to eat in a shul while they're learning? Because when they're not learning, there's no, there's no permissibility to be eating in a shul because the only reason why we're going to let the person eat is because this is where they are. And if they are gonna to have to go out to go eat, well, they're gonna to have to take away from their Torah study and that's gonna make them miss time, so we, so we allow them to eat. But outside of that time, we don't, we don't allow it. So what classifies somebody as a Talmud Chacham, as a Torah scholar? So what do you think? Somebody that studies uh, throughout a meal time for an extended period of time. Got it. And he would he would be, it would ca- carry over into his meal time. Yes. Okay. Somebody who 
has been to yeshiva continues to study every day okay so it's like how much knowledge has he acquired that you can say oh like he's on that he's on that level so the answer is that of course it's an argument um, between two approaches one approach is you have to be in order for this to be considered your house right well, kind of the basis of this is it's your house it's, this is where you are and this is therefore what you're allowed to do not because it's being disrespectful it's just that you spend all day here it's, it's your place and therefore you can, you can eat there because it's your place so in order to for that for, for that classification to apply you need to spend all day there. You need to be somebody who spends his days in the base medrash. And then we can say, well, taking you away from that would make you miss Torah study. But if anyway, you only spend an hour a day, well, this is not really your place. You can go out and come back and have that hour that you're gonna learn. It's not really your place. So that's one approach. That's the Mishnah Brewer's approach. The other approach, and this is the accepted approach, is that the fact is, let's say I have a set time that I study with somebody. Nine o'clock at night, I sit down with somebody and learn with him. If at that time I need a drink, or I'm hungry, or whatever it is, and I'm going to have to step out to take that drink and miss time from my Torah study, <coughs> so in that moment, I'm already a Torah scholar, Torah scholar, because at that moment, that same issue, which is that it's going to take me away from learning, applies to me. And therefore, at that moment, I'm considered a Torah scholar, and therefore, drinking or eating in a shul at the time of learning would be okay. But not davening. No, not davening. Um, is it ever permissible during davening? So davening, we don't eat and drink in general during davening. It's but not. People do. Yeah, right. I don't, I don't think that's correct. Yeah. I don't think that's the right thing to do. Okay. Um, it doesn't really jive with davening, you know? Right. But a lot of times, I, I have too, because I've seen other people get a cup of coffee, daven with more kavana. <laughs> right. Right. But you say it's Yeah, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, learning is different, because it's not like you're making an interruption. It's not like you're in the midst of the prayer. Yeah. You're learning, you take a, take a sip, carry on going. Yeah. Um, so I think, I think davening would be different. So let's kind of like summarize what we've learned so far. We have kind of the strict letter of the law of the Shulchan Aruch. We have the minig that we know of. We found different reasons why the minig can be upheld. Um, but if you're going with the Shulchan Aruch straight, eating and drinking in a shul should not be something done. Um, even according to the minig, technically, it's not, it's not a, a good option to be eating and drinking in a shul just for no mitzvah, just whatever. Um, now, there is something which is, is worth mentioning, which is that these days, most shuls are not considered just shuls. They're also called, they're considered a base medrash. They're also considered like a place of learning. A place of learning has less strict laws because a place of learning is a place where people are there for longer. It's more of a, call it a hangout, it's more where people are spending much more time there, it's not dedicated to this is just davening, we're here. So that's why these days a shul could be a little bit less strict now because we spend a lot of time learning and studying there, whereas it seems like it wasn't like that in the past. Um, there was one room for davening and another room for learning. These days where we have these big shuls and people learn and daven in the same place, it's somewhat less serious, but for sure, better not to be eating and drinking in a shul just off, just off the cuff, um, unless it's part of a mitzvah. That, that still seems to describe the uh, chapel. Uh, 
place Midrash more than it does the synagogue. What does? The fact that you learn and we, we learn in Daven and also in the same place. And we don't really learn over here in the large Right, right. So that would probably depend on the. Although you could say that. Um, like I see in yeshiva, for example, in yeshiva, you, there's probably a, there's probably an ark, there's Torah scroll. You probably dive in there, but then you yeah. learn, you learn dur- during the day. So, there's, so yeah. that, that seems to be what you described. Yeah, but even in the shul, I mean, I'm sure after davening, you have people who stick around and, oh, and learn so or uh, give a shear or. Yeah. And they do one four on one foot. Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that there's probably it's a place where people definitely sit and learn to some extent. So. So, but but then you're saying if like the synagogue, so it's a place where you learn, then conceivably could someone bring a drink in there? So if so, then we would say that. To? So if it's while he's learning, then that would be okay. Oh, while well, the lecture's going on, for example. Correct. Exactly. What about if you're listening to the lecture? <laughs> what about the children and candy? Because almost every shul I've ever been to, they're throwing candy to the children. Bar mitzvah. Yeah. No, I mean, or just there's like the candy guy. Yeah. The, the kids are always eating the shul. Yeah. So I think it would go back to this minig. Yeah. Like yeah. the minig has become that something which is accepted. We go with that. Yeah. Should a person just go and and if you're just having going around your regular day, should you choose to sit in a shul with Food? No, that's not the right thing. But this is a minig which has been going on for generations to the candy and the kids get candy. So we we have uh, the minig to rely on. Okay. I want to now go into the discussion of a mechitza. So what I want to do is um, let's open up to... um, I'm sorry I don't have English English, uh, stuff tonight. Page 11. Page 11. See, uh, it's 25. So it's source 25. Which is page, page yeah. no, it's not 25, excuse me. Oh, you know what's funny? Oh, you have a different one? Oh, that's very funny. Oh, Rabbi Solish gave us the wrong. Give us the wrong. It's not as thick. Mine has all the answers. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's from. I grabbed this last week. That's so that one actually would be right. Let me see. Here's the one. Here's the one. That's it. Yeah. Okay. So you're the lucky one. Okay. Do you mind if I use this? No, no. Be my guest. Okay. Yeah. So here we go. We're going to open it with a Gemara in Masech the Sukkah. Um, and the Gemara says like this. There was a certain Tikkun Godel. There was a certain big kind of like accomplishment or, or fix that was made in the, in the base of Migdosh in the temple that was made that... Uh, that really solved a big crisis, a big problem. So the question is, what was this big problem that they made and what, how did they fix it? So it says like this, the sages taught as follows. We're talking about Sukkot. What did Sukkot look like in the Beis HaMikdash? We're told that Sukkot in the Beis HaMikdash was the greatest, happiest time and anybody who didn't, had never saw such a joy has never seen joy in his life. That's what it, that's what it says. So it was a very happy time. What would happen? You would have these uh, um, sages would come and they would do tricks. They would uh, they would throw tor- you know uh, uh, juggle, and basically people would stand around and watch the dancing. So it says in the beginning you had um, the woman would stand around and the men would stand behind, watching kind of like over their shoulders, over the woman's shoulders. So not that they would be standing with each other, 
the women would be standing, the men would be standing behind them, watching. So there was no mechitza. What happened was, it started to, to create issues. The men and the women started to intermingle. So they switched it around. The men in the front, the women in the back, it didn't help. So what they did was, they created this tikkun gadol, this big fix. What was the big fix? They made a, uh, a balcony. So I'm sure you see many shuls with a balcony. Made a balcony. And uh, that's what they did, and that's how they solved, solved the problem. Now from this, from the fact that they went ahead and made a balcony, which means they made a, uh, an addition to the, the Beis HaMikdash, to the temple, which usually is not allowed. You're not allowed to add to the Beis HaMikdash more than it's, it's supposed to be there. So from the fact that they were prepared to add this whole addition is a proof that a mechitza is a biblical commandment. Because if a mechitza was not a biblical commandment, they would have no right to go ahead and add to the base of English. Only something which has the weight of a biblical commandment could have the, the, the ability to, make, to give them the, the allowance to add to the base of English. And this is what Ramosha Feinstein says. Ramosha Feinstein says that a mechitza is a biblical commandment. But if there was a biblical commandment, why did they do it in the first place? So not that a mechitza is a physical structure. Oh. The idea of separating men, men and women is a biblical commandment. Okay. Now, this is to such an extent that uh, Rabbi Soloveitchik, who maybe you've heard of from the YU, heard of him before? So Rabbi J.B. Soloveitchik, he's you know, one of the very famous rabbis in America, and uh, he was a very prominent rabbi in, the, in YU in, in New York. So he wrote so strongly about this that a student of his asked him, should I go to a shul to hear, to hear, a shofar, hear the sounding of the shofar, um, or should I stay at home, and the shul does not have a mechitza, or should I stay at home? and miss the sounding of the shofar. And he answered him that having a mechitza in a shul, or the lack of a mechitza in a shul, is such an issue that it's better that you miss the sounding of the shofar than to go ahead to such a shul. Why? So he gave a bit of an interesting explanation because, think about it, he said. Part of the reason where this comes from, having no mechitza in a shul, family sitting together, etc., is it's kind of got built off of the, the reform movement who wanted to replicate how it is in other faiths where families sit together. So following the ways of other faiths is a biblical prohibition. Whereas, um, whereas going ahead and doing a mitzvah is something you actively do. So there's, there's two things. I can either hear the chauffeur or I can not, go, not, not hear the chauffeur and thereby not go over this prohibition. And the, the halacha always says that when, whenever you have this kind of issue where I can either go ahead and do a mitzvah, but it's going gonna, it's gonna to be... Exactly, it's going to cause me to an avera or not do anything, you always say, shav al tasa adif. Stay where you are. Shav, stay, sit, al tasa, and don't do it. That's always a preferred approach. So he told his student, even though you have the sounding of the shofar, which is a biblical, pro, uh, 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 it's a mitzvah, sounding the shofar on Rosh Hashanah, better to stay at home and not, um, and not go to the shul because of that would basically be going along with this uh, you know, 
replicating of, of other religions, which is like a very, it's, it's astounding, right? So it kind of shows the, the great, um, you know, the graveness that they felt about having a mechitz in a shul. So having a mechitz in a shul is obviously, it's, it's, as we see, a biblical commandment, and it's also, it's a very, it's an important thing as well. Now, what is the mechitzah meant to do? Why is the mechitzah? What are we trying to accomplish? Keep the men from checking out the room. Okay. Separate men from right. Separate men from, from what reason? Well, what I've read is in order to do, uh, so there shouldn't be lighthearted. You shouldn't take your mind off your dominant. You Good. So similar to what he's saying. Yeah. You shouldn't get distracted. Good. Good. So either, so, so, so basically the answer is there's two reasons given. Both by the Rambam, both by Maimonides, but Maimonides writes two different things in two different places. In one place, in his commentary to the Mishnah, he writes that the reason is, like you're saying, not to uh, get distracted by looking at the woman. In his Mishnah Torah, in, in his book of, of Jewish law, he says that the reason why in this Gemara, in, in, the, in the temple, they made the separation was because that the men shouldn't be able to look at the woman. You shouldn't be able to mingle with the woman. Okay. So, is it that they shouldn't mingle, or you shouldn't see? So in the temple, it would be, I'd see where he said mingle, because there was no separation. Yeah. And that's why... But then, right. So that's why you have a machitza, that's why you have a separation between the men and the women, so they shouldn't congregate together. Right. But, but then you could still, but then according to that, then you could still see them. That maybe is why he has the second opinion. So here's the question. Whenever, whenever halacha gives multiple reasons, we always have to... Dis- there has to be a reason for each one. So, <laughs> yeah, we also, we also have to, dis- we have to also determine which is the primary reason. Yeah. Right? Because if we're going to go and decide halacha, well, which is the primary reason? So between these two reasons, which is yeah. the primary one? So this became a hot debate between um, Rav Moshe Feinstein and some of the other uh, you know, prominent rabbis of the last hundred years. Rav Moshe Feinstein felt that the main reason behind having a mechitza, according to the Rambam, is... Which one? Mingle. 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 He felt that that's the reason for a mechitza. Right. And by the way, it kind of makes sense because... Um, between the two books that the Rambam wrote, one is a commentary and one is a book of law. So you would probably think to follow the book of law when you're deciding the halacha, right? And that's what the Rambam writes in the book of law, that it's, it's because of mingling. Right. So he, that's what he felt. He felt that it's, it's because of that reason. And uh, he based this on that story of what happened in the temple. right? Because right? he said, what happened here? The, the men are standing behind the woman in the beginning, right? And they're looking kind of past the woman into the, the scene that's going on. But they're seeing the woman. And yet, that wasn't the issue. The issue was mingling. That's why they made the separation. And even with the separation, you could, you could, you could look up, you could see. So therefore, he felt that, that was the primary reason is because of, of mingling. Once you don't have the mingling issue, um, it's okay. Now, how, now, what does that mean, basically? That a mechitza technically only has to create a separation. But how tall does a mechitza have to be? It doesn't have to be above uh, head height. 
because we don't worry about seeing necessarily. It's just about mingling. So as long as it's a, a solid barrier, it's okay. How high should the barrier be? So I think he said 56 inches. 18 tfachim. Okay. There's a thing about shoulder height. Yeah, about four and a half tfachim. Yeah. So... But it, could be, but it could be see-through. Oh. So another thing that comes out from that approach is that mechitza could be see-through. Having a glass mechitza. Does a glass mechitza work? So... According to Rav Moshe Feinstein, technically a glass mechitza should work. Now, th- it's important to note that Rav Moshe Feinstein did say that if women are showing up to shul not dressed uh, appropriately, well, then there's nothing to talk about because a person's never supposed to look at uh, a woman who's not dressed appropriately. So we're not talking about that. We're talking about is purely in the subject of mechitza. So can you have glass and can you have something that is not so tall? According to Rav Moshe Feinstein, the reason would be okay. Um, but there were others who, who argued quite vehemently on this. Um, and they felt that, that, that no, that it's actually the opposite. Um, and the reason that the Raman brings in his explanation to the Mishnah, which is that it's because of seeing each other, is the, is the primary issue. And therefore, glass mechitza would be a problem. Now, what did he base that on? He so Rabbi Feinstein was using the, this, the scenario in the Gemara. Mm-hmm. So if the Rambam disagrees with him, what did he base it on? So I'll... I'll I mean, do we know? I mean... Yeah, yeah. So it's right here. Um, he says like this. If it was just about creating a separation, well, then why do they have to go and make a whole gallery, a oh. balcony? So it must be that it was more than just creating... It was all down there to begin with anyway. So right. The women up, up, you, could, you could have put a little, a little fence. Exactly. So from the fact that, he put it, that, that they decided to put the woman up and make an addition to the temple um, is an indication that they really wanted that there should be a major separation that you can't even see. And, and he says that it's, it's probable that you wouldn't see. Like in your regular shul where there's a, a balcony or a gallery... I mean, in some, it's probably, if you, if, you, if you really try, you can see. But it's, it's much harder than if it would just be right next to, and it's a low mechitza. So to him, the indication from, from the fact that they created that whole thing was actually that um, the problem is looking. So it's, it's interesting, again, how we see in these classes over and over, how you can take the same piece of Gemara and come to different conclusions. Um, and that's what's happening here. But it can also be that practical that it allows the women to see what's going on in the balcony. Yeah, that's true. If they're behind the mechitza, like, they can't. Meaning, like in this shul, you have side by side. Right. So technically, they could have done that. Right, right. But in a lot of shuls, like in the Chabad shul, right, sometimes they have the screen and the women are behind, but they can't actually see anything that's going on. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's that, that would, like, I think that's, that's definitely not ideal. Right. Um, yeah, you want to have the, the woman see. But I guess the, 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 the issue is, is that if it was just a matter of convenience, mm-hmm. would they really have added a whole piece to the temple because of that? Mm-hmm. Probably not. Right. So that indicates that there was a real mm-hmm. reason to do it. And he, he wants to say that the, that, that reason is mm-hmm. that the issue is seeing and that issue is uh, only taken care of when you create that balcony. Okay, so again, how do we get here? We started off saying that it's a biblical thing. How do we know that from the fact that they added this whole piece? What's the reason? Two things in the Rambam. Which reason of the Rambam is the main thing? Ramosha says the one in his book of law, which says it's because of mingling. 
and the others, which I'll just tell you quickly what they are, the Mishnah Halachas, Mishnah Halachas is Menashe Klein, his name is Rabbi Menashe Klein, he's a rabbi in Israel, um, been a rabbi for a long time, he's an older man, but uh, still around, and uh, he, he accepts that, and the Lubavitcher Rebbe as well um, went with that uh, reason of, of seeing as being the primary reason. And um, it's a pity that you guys don't have this in front of you, so I'll just kind of um, reference you to some letters where the Rebbe spoke about this. And he was asked about a, this was a rabbi who was uh, looking to take a position in a shul where they didn't have a high enough mechitza. And clearly the rabbi wanted the job, so he's trying to kind of like, well, maybe we can, you know, work this out. Can I just, so if seeing's the issue, then the height does become critical. Correct. Correct. And therefore the, the, the height of the mechitza should be about six foot. So it's uh, at least over the height which of... Is more than what Rabbi Feinstein said, which correct. he said it was four and a half. Right. Exactly. Wow, okay. So it's a big difference. Big difference. It is a big difference. Big difference. The, the normative halacha is not like Rabbi Moshe Feinstein said. So the vast kind of majority of, of, of rabbis do not agree with the approach that Moshe Feinstein said. So it, you, you, I think you'd be hard-pressed to find a shul which follows that, um, unless maybe it's like a student of Moshe Feinstein who's like, you know, dead on, on going with, with his way. Because the truth is, even Moshe Feinstein ends off his, um, his kind of ruling that somebody who makes the mechitza taller, tovel of bracha. Which is yeah, like, you, like, you know, right. it, it's, it's good. It, it, it's, it's a proper it approach. Satisfy all the opinions. That's the best way to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Um, okay. So you're saying about I interrupted about the Rebbe said something about someone took over a synagogue and he wanted to had to do with the height of the. Um, exactly. So the person was asking about the height of the, uh, height of the thing, and basically the Rebbe said that it should be um, the height of a person. And also that glass is, it shouldn't be used. And in, in the words that the Rebbe used, I'll read it to you, he said, um, he says, You know what it means to, to nar up? You know, you know Yiddish a little bit? To nar. To nar in Yiddish means to like fool. So, the Rebbe's point was, like, who are you fooling? Like, do you really think that having a mechitza, which is clear, is going to, going to, going to be good for anybody here? Um, and so the Rebbe's approach was that a mechitza should not be uh, glass, shouldn't be clear. So at this point, so we have a lot more to discuss. We have, the main issue we're going to discuss next time is what type of um, events need a mechitza. So if we were giving this shir right now to men and women, do we need a mechitza? The approach would be probably yes. You're, you're learning. So that's what we're going to do next time. We're going to see, go through different types of situations. Sure. So, like the mechitza in the, in the, in the small room, where it's, it's like uh, slatted. Slat. Slat. Oh. Slats, you have slats. So, if it's within a certain. How does that work? Because so, we're going to get into that as well. That as well. Okay, yeah, but the, the, main, the main thing is, is that the, the gap shouldn't be so wide that it's right. basically considered like there's nothing there. Right. It should be close enough that it so creates a real right. uh, kind of uh, block. So it would be considered as being connected. Correct. So yeah. three tefachim or whatever it is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. that's the idea. I think it's actually, in this case, we use a tefach, but um, yeah. we'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll discuss it. Okay, that's that. Thanks for joining, guys. And uh, we'll be on Tuesday. Tuesday. Back on schedule.
That's super. Thank you. Okay, fantastic. Good to have you back. Thank you. It's good to be back. Can I ask a sort of off-topic question sure. about the old man? Sure. Can I, can I, I just want to turn off the recording a second.